Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. As has been said so aptly a number of times, we may be done with COVID, but it isn't done with us yet. News of a new variant of concern, Omicron, has raised questions again about whether boosters and vaccinating children will finally mark the end of this pandemic. And as the pandemic drags on, we must remember that from the earliest days of the pandemic forward, our response has placed heavy reliance on our health systems and the people working in them to spare us the worst impacts. Healthcare workers have stepped up in hospitals, in clinics, in vaccine and testing centers, and on social media. Physicians take an oath to do no harm, but patients and families don't take that same oath. Given all that we've been through during the pandemic, though, and knowing the pandemic isn't over yet, we ought to ask, are we doing enough to care for our caring professionals? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Smart. Dr. Smart is a pediatrician in Whitehorse, Yukon, and president of the Canadian Medical Association. To discuss this, as well as the CMA's latest report, A Struggling System, Understanding the Healthcare Impacts of the Pandemic. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Smart. And welcome to At Risk. Thank you so much for having me. So please tell us, how bad has it been for Canada's healthcare workers during the pandemic in terms of threats and intimidation? Well, you know, unfortunately, it's a problem that has really been growing and getting worse. And I think as we've gotten deeper into this pandemic, the problem has gotten much larger. You know, at the beginning, I think there was a lot of, you know, recognition of healthcare workers, a lot of public recognition, you know, so much healthcare heroes, pots and pans, you know, people really celebrating healthcare professionals, which was amazing. And I still think absolutely the vast majority of Canadians so value healthcare providers and and the care they've received and they see how hard people have been working to care for them. But, you know, as the pandemic's evolved, we've seen this evolution of misinformation really filling the space and this increasing polarization around things like vaccinations, vaccine certificates, or passports. Um, And I think with that, we've seen escalating violence and harassment directed at healthcare workers uh, by that small segment of the population that have really bought into misinformation and people that are now feeling very frustrated by the vaccine mandates that are having implications for their day-to-day life. And unfortunately, I think that frustration has really started to be targeted at healthcare workers. Um, so, you know, I think it, it we've seen it very publicly at some of the demonstrations and protests that have happened around hospitals. You know, most recently in this past week, protesters harassing families and children at a pediatric vaccine clinic, which is something that's really kind of hard to imagine that people would stoop to that level. Um, but then, then what we're also seeing is, you know, increasing violence within hospitals, you know, people that did not believe in COVID, that then find themselves in hospital needing uh, acute care. 
really angry and in disbelief, lashing out at nurses and physicians, sometimes physically. Um, and we've been seeing, you know, increasing threats, uh, I think, in an effort to intimidate healthcare professionals. And those have come in the way of, you know, death threats through things like phone calls, faxes. But online has really become a huge uh, area where that's happening as well with increasing trolling behavior but but more concerning i think is direct messages and threats that are 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 being made in a very real way uh to physicians and that's been really really concerning and of course all that behavior uh is really contributing to the burnout that's happening in our health workforce right now which is really concerning because we need those those people and we need them well so that they can continue to care for canadians now, maybe the answer is obvious, but what happens to a health system when its workforce is burnt out? Well, we know nothing good. You know, even before the pandemic, uh, there's been a lot of research done looking at how wellness and burnout impacts patient care and quality of care. And I think part of the reason there's been so much interest uh, in physician wellness and, and the fact that it is an issue is because it's clearly been correlated to worsening health outcomes, both at the systems level and at a patient care level. So I think it's not surprising to think that if someone's not healthy themselves and they're not doing well, they're not going to be able to provide the same level of quality care to patients. And that, of course, has impacts for individual patients, but it also has impacts in systems. You know, when you're in a hospital and everyone in that space working is, is burnt out, you can imagine sort of the culture that that creates or what that work environment is like. And, and that has those ripple down effects. So I think burnout has, has huge impacts. Uh, of course, the personal cost to people is also really significant, but the impacts on the system are large and, and enduring. Yeah. And certainly not meaning to be crass, uh, but it takes a long time to uh, create a healthcare worker, right? The the training, the education, um, both education on the job and in school. Um, is there something that that can be done to to you know in the short term um, to try and help this workforce who's under so much duress? No, I think what you've said is so important. Um, it's not easy just to find new healthcare professionals. You know, as you've said, um, the training to become a physician is many, many years of first undergrad, then medical school, then residency, sometimes even fellowship training. And then, of course, there's a lot of development that happens when you're actually working, a lot of mentorship that takes place in the healthcare system. And nurses, the same, you know, when a new nurse needs that mentorship from senior nurses in order to elevate their skill set. And many nurses go on and do other specialized training and things like critical care or other specialized areas of practice. So when we're seeing attrition from our experienced healthcare staff, that again has huge effects on the system. And that's why addressing things like burnout and wellness and retaining the staff we have is so important. But I also think it, it speaks to why, you know, short-term solutions on that human health resource side are so challenging. You know, we don't have healthcare professionals right now in the wings that are just looking for a job, uh, you know, so it, we we need more doctors and nurses, you know, they're not sitting out there unemployed, hoping someone phones them. And that's a huge part of the problem is where is this resource? And it's not quickly uh, brought up to speed. Um, so that's one of the big, big challenges we're facing right now is, you know, long term, absolutely, we can start planning better for these things. And that needs to happen. And I think that's a huge lesson out of this pandemic. But what do we do? 
in the short term. Um, and I think that's why addressing things that contribute to burnout, like intimidation and harassment, are so important because that's at least something we could maybe do something about to make people's lives a bit better day to day. Yes. Well, last week, uh, Minister uh, Lametti uh, provided a press briefing uh, and legislation was introduced, really creating two new criminal offenses, uh, one targeting uh, intimidation of health workers, and uh, the second one uh, focused in on obstruction uh, to access to health care. How has this two new offenses been received by the profession? I would say very, very well. You know, we were very happy to be at that press briefing with Minister Lametti and part of delivering that message to Canadians and to our colleagues in medicine and nursing that this was hopefully coming. Um, it's been something we've been advocating about with the government now for a long time, and we were really, really pleased to see this legislation come forward. Um, I think the way they framed it in terms of using that language around intimidation, you know, uh, harassment, that's the purpose of it is to intimidate people from either providing care, receiving care, or intimidation, you know, to the people that support us to deliver the care. Uh, is really what's needed because that's, of course, the point of this behavior is to intimidate people uh, from from being able to do their jobs, and and that's what makes it so problematic. So I think it was really um, received very well uh, by our colleagues who felt like the government is hearing them, seeing them, and actually taking seriously the impacts this behavior is having on them and their ability to do their jobs. Um, so of course now the legislation needs to be passed, and and I think we're optimistic that this doesn't need to be a partisan issue and it's something that all parties can get behind. Um, so hopefully that's something that will happen quickly. But I think it's going to really make a big difference in terms of healthcare workers feeling like this violence that they're experiencing is not acceptable and, and feeling that that's being seen and taken seriously uh, goes a long way. Yes, and I think the other really important aspect of, you know, focusing in on intimidation and obstruction um, and the reasons for it, as you say, is because it doesn't mean people can't protest. They just can't engage in tactics that are designed to prevent other people from accessing healthcare or preventing people from delivering that healthcare. Absolutely. You know, I, I completely agree. And I think we all recognize that an important part of democracy is the ability for people to disagree, uh, to have conversations about things, to be allowed to have their own opinions and to peacefully protest. That's a really important part of our society and it, it brings huge value. But that's exactly right. I think that's what we want to see is when that line is drawn between what is peaceful protesting, but crossing over and trying to use protests as a way to intimidate and obstruct people. That's now the line in the sand, right? It's been made clear. Yes, you can disagree. That's absolutely fine. You can protest for sure, but you can't cross that line into having your protest you know, start to obstruct people from care or intimidate the people delivering it. So I think they got that right. And I think that is important um, because, of course, that's a value that that needs to be taken seriously. And we need the ability in our society to disagree with each other. Um, but we also have to have some boundaries around how far that can go. And in my view, I think this struck that balance. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. And do you anticipate all party support? Have you had any conversations with uh, the other parties represented in the House? We have. And um, certainly we have heard from all parties that they are 
concerned about this issue. I think it's it's very front and center right now in people's minds um, and, and want to take action on it. Certainly in the past, we've seen both the Conservatives and the NDP both speak out on this issue and, and offer to take action on it. Um, so I think we're optimistic that when this comes to the House, it should be supported. I think it would be surprising to see a political party argue against this. I don't know what rationale you would exactly have for thinking it's okay that people are intimidated in giving care or receiving care. And I think because of the balance they've struck still allowing for peaceful protests, which is important, I think that takes that concern off the table. Um, so I'm really optimistic and hopeful that we'll see this this bill move through quickly. Now, during the press briefing and even earlier in our conversation, you talked about physicians working in hospitals and clinics and on social media. Do you think that this legislation will do anything to target the the threats and intimidation that occur over the social media platforms? I think it's certainly a starting point. You know, we did have that conversation with the government, you know, will this extend to online spaces? And we've been told that it will. Um, So I think that's very encouraging uh, because, you know, I think what we've also really seen during the pandemic is how important online spaces have become for our society. You know, we've been able to to get out so much information to the public using platforms like social media, and we've been able to dispel so much information that's also reaching people through those platforms. So, of course, that is a concern, uh, absolutely. But I, I think there's a huge... Um, possibility and continuing to leverage social media as a way to provide more education and information to Canadians around health. And I think that's really important. And I think it's really critical that actual experts can fill those spaces, you know, physicians, nurses, scientists. We can't let those spaces be overtaken by people peddling misinformation. So our voices in that space, I think, are more important than ever. Um, And I think the fact that this legislation can extend to intimidation in those spaces is critically important uh, to allow those spaces to remain a reasonable place for people to have conversations. Um, We've also are starting to have some conversations with the social media platforms themselves that have been really encouraging. You know, they share our concern. They want their spaces to be safe for the people that use their platforms. They certainly want to allow dialogue, uh, which we think is important, but they don't want their platforms to become havens, you know, for misinformation or for, for violence, harassment, or bullying. Uh, so I think there's a lot of shared interest in in making sure that these platforms are safer. And I think this legislation also helps those platforms then in terms of, you know, their own terms and conditions and how they manage those spaces when they've got that clear backing from government to say, you know, this intimidation is not acceptable. So I feel like we're moving in the right direction. I think we all know it's never going to be perfect, um, but I think improvement and, and trying to make th- these things function better for people is is what we should be doing. Yes. I mean, look, vaccine hunters, a lot of people bemoaned that there had to be a vaccine uh, hunters to uh, to help us uh, navigate the system and, and find uh, available uh, vaccine. But hugely important initiative that just had enormous positive impact. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I think has been so interesting during this pandemic is that's a great example of something that, you know, popped up and, and helped so many people. And also all the incredible quality information that's been made available to people online uh, so that they, they can go there and get answers to their questions and that concerted effort uh, to provide 
quality information for people, I think, has been amazing. Um, and I, I think the other thing that's really been important is, you know, the voices of physicians, some who have really, with permission of their patients, profiled their stories and experiences. I think has really helped uh, connect with the hearts and minds of Canadians that maybe weren't experiencing some of the impacts of COVID directly themselves in terms of maybe they themselves hadn't been sick or hadn't had a loved one who's sick. When you hear those stories uh, told by frontline workers, people that have cared for patients, it's incredibly powerful. Um, and I think that was another amazing thing that happened was that ability to really try to bring people inside of hospitals to really see what people were actually experiencing is a way to really motivate Canadians towards collective action, like choosing to be vaccinated, you know, complying with public health strategies, because people could see how important it was when they really saw what was happening inside of our hospitals. Yeah, I want to go back to something else you said in the context of um, uh, burnout. During my time working at Sinai, I certainly recall in particular one instance, it, it involved a nurse where a patient was saying quite racist things. That nurse continued to provide care, but we felt it important to provide additional supports to that nurse, uh, understanding that this was beyond the call and that, you know, th those kinds of utterances do create harm. So, Thinking about that and, and understanding that, you know, threats and intimidation, while they've certainly escalated uh, during the pandemic, uh, they're not new. And also that it's a very gendered issue uh, as well, and that the experiences of uh, women in the healthcare workforce as it relates to threats and intimidation uh, is even, you know, more so. So, do we think this legislation will, or these potential two new criminal offenses, will this help even beyond the pandemic, uh, try and address what, what, what has been even a problem that, that predates the pandemic? I certainly hope it does, because as you've said, I think way too many healthcare workers have had to tolerate violence, harassment, and bullying in the workplace for far too long. And I think you're absolutely right. Right, It has often uh, roots in misogyny and racism, and it's been disproportionately a burden carried by nurses, who of course are largely female and have experienced levels of workplace harassment and violence that are really, you know, hard to comprehend. We were hearing at the press briefing, you know, over 90% of, of nurses have reported this. So this is a huge systemic issue. No one should have to tolerate that type of behavior in their workplace. And I think for, for too long, you know, the messaging has sort of been to healthcare professionals, well, it's just part of the job. You know, you kind of have to put up with this. Well, there are patients, we have to care for them. It hasn't really been taken seriously enough in terms of putting some boundaries around what's acceptable behavior and what's not, you know, you'll walk around a hospital, you'll see all these posters, you know, harassment's not tolerated or, you know, violence isn't tolerated. But are, what are we really doing to follow up with that in a real way to protect people and create safe workspaces for them? And I think that's hugely, hugely important. So I, I do feel that this legislation sends that message also, you know, as you've said, hopefully we're not in this pandemic forever. And as we emerge out of it and we focus on rebuilding our healthcare system, I think this is a fundamental thing that we need to think about is how do we create psychologically and physically safe workspaces for people uh, so that they can thrive in their work and they don't have to go to work scared about the treatment that they're going to have to endure when you're when they're there. Um, and, you know, I think that we we see, unfortunately, as you said, you know, 
so much of this hatred does have that underpinning of misogyny, of racism, of anti-Semitism. You know, this is really concerning. And we we know that those are really structural issues that impact people's wellness and and not only for uh, people providing care, but also for patients and and more broadly in our society. So I think these these issues are impact everyone. And the more that we can do to actually name them, acknowledge them and take action, I think goes a long way to creating a better Canada for everybody. Is there anything in medical education that prepares, uh, you know, future physicians for the work environment they're, they're, they're going to encounter? Yes, and I think it's getting better, but I think there can always be more. You know, it's interesting for myself. I've been in medicine now for over 20 years. um, And when I think back about what it was like in my training and how much we talked about these things, I've really seen that shift. People now often use the term the hidden curriculum, which was not a term I'd ever heard when I was a medical student. And it, what they mean by that is, is really those unspoken norms that exist in medical culture um, that can sometimes be really detrimental to people's wellness. Um, so I think there's more awareness uh, around some of the cultural aspects of medicine and the way we even treat each other uh, that need to, need to shift and, and to create a, a healthier workplace for people. So I think that's an important part of the conversation. We certainly, in our training, you know, of course, do talk about how do we deal with difficult situations with patients? How do we navigate these types of scenarios um, where there is disagreement or, you know, inappropriate behavior, violence, harassment? Uh, And those are things that we sort of, you know, sometimes practice and we do talk about them. Um, I would not say there's a lot of opportunities for people to learn about that online space as I think it's something that's newer and and certainly in terms of physicians really being active in those spaces en masse, which I think has been a big change with the pandemic. You know, there's always been people that have been more active in social media, but I think you're seeing now a big upsurge in the numbers of people. I think that's a space uh, where there's a lot of room uh, to to educate people about how to do that safely and, and how to look out for these issues and protect themselves from that online. So that's something that I suspect is probably trailing behind a bit, um, but it's going to have to catch up because I think we're realizing that that is a space uh, that we need to occupy and we need to figure out ways to do it safely. Yes, I think it, that is potentially one of the positive outcomes uh, from this pandemic is that I think Canada's uh, physicians have really found their voice uh, online and and it truly is uh, another uh, avenue of care. It's not an avenue of treatment, but it's an avenue of care. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that is really important. And, you know, I've reflected on that a lot myself, you know, now that I'm in this position of being the president of the CMA and I have a platform to speak to Canadians, um, you know, in the media, but also through things like this podcast and other talks and, and presentations I've given, several of which have been online. What you do realize is you have this opportunity to really reach a much larger audience than what we're used to. You know, most of our interactions, of course, are one-on-one in the office or in the hospital. You're the doctor, you have the patient, and you're working on solving their healthcare concern as a team. But when you can actually take the knowledge that you have and, and the thoughts that you have and the things you want to share to that larger platform, and you know, the other night I gave a talk for parents in British Columbia that was live streamed on YouTube and then still there for people to look at. And you look back and you see, you know, a few thousand people have watched it. What you do realize is in that hour of your time, you can actually reach such a larger audience than what we would do traditionally. And I think that type of care, that ability to reach more people, 
uh, to answer their questions, to share information, and then for it to be there in that online space for other people to access if they have questions is so, so important. Um, and, and I think it's going to be really interesting to think about, you know, is there ways that we can leverage that around chronic disease management, around prevention, around mental health in ways maybe that we haven't before um, and, and really be able to use our workforce in, in a different way at times. Now, healthcare workers are struggling, but so is the system in which they work. Um, the CMA uh, released a report this week uh, in collaboration with Deloitte. How bad is it? What has been the toll of the pandemic? Well, I'm afraid there was not a lot of good news in that report. I mean, the toll has been substantial. And and that the purpose of the report we released this week was to really try to give Canadians a lens on some of the non-COVID impacts in the system. You know, a lot of our attention and news has been focused on the burden of providing care to COVID patients in hospital and how much that's overwhelmed the system. But sometimes lost in that is all the other people that have been trying to seek care in this time frame and how it's impacted them and their lives. And, and this report is, is sort of, a, I guess, a glimpse into that. So, uh, you know, to highlight a few of the things, you know, in terms of on the acute care side, what we found was really significant backlogs. We looked at eight different procedures um, and found, you know, over 325,000 Canadians who've had delays in the, those eight procedures, which included hip and knee replacement uh, cataract surgery, coronary artery bypass, breast and colon cancer surgery, and also um, MRIs and CT scans. So, of course, that's the tip of the iceberg. You know, we know there's many other procedures that have been cancelled for Canadians, but that, you know, kind of gives you a sense of these are all people that need care. You know, none of those things I'm talking about are, are elective things. These are people that are really suffering and, and not getting the care they need. So that's concerning. We found in a five-month period uh, from August to December of 2020, you know, 4,000 excess deaths in the system not related to COVID, most likely related to delays in care or a lack of access to care. So that is hugely concerning. We found rising issues with mental health, you know, uh, percentage of anxiety and depression increasing. And then in parallel with that, a worsening opioid epidemic, which we've heard lots about, but again, has sometimes been drowned out in all the talk about COVID is we've lost track of that, you know, 20 Canadians losing their lives every day to substance misuse. So that is hugely, hugely concerning. And then in the background from the prevention side, we saw a huge drop off in screening for different types of cancers. You know, of course, there's going to be downstream impacts of that when those cancers weren't caught in early stages and people are now presenting with more advanced cancers. Uh, that, of course, be hugely impactful for them personally, but also on the system that now has to, you know, provide much more complex care for more advanced disease. And we also saw people with chronic illnesses struggling to access care, which of course impacts them personally in terms of their health not being optimized, but again means more people presenting with more um, developed and more significant disease down the road, which again means more resources to solve that problem. So I think what, what this report has really painted, and I don't think it would surprise anybody, is just that there's been really broad impacts of how overwhelmed our systems have been from COVID. Um, and that has led to you know, impacts across the system. And this is, of course, a system that was struggling before the pandemic. So I, I think really in front of us right now is where do we go from here? You know, we know the healthcare system in Canada has been struggling for a long time. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. We know there's lots of challenges because of 
the sort of turf wars between the federal and provincial governments when it comes to health, and that sometimes leads to inaction. But I, I really feel we've come to a point where we have to move beyond just talking about these issues. You know, what are we actually going to do? Um, and I really hope that policymakers and governments are listening uh, because I think Canadians deserve better. And the system we have right now is really crumbling. And we, if we don't take action soon, I, I think it's going to be really scary to see what happens here over the next decade. So how do we begin to fix the system? And I think we can all agree we don't need another report. <laughs> yes, no more reports. <laughs> <laughs> what what might shock people if they take a look at, at that report is that the impacts are far-reaching and large. It's not, you know, it's broad and deep, the, the impacts that, that all of our attention to COVID has had on the system. Oh, yes, I, I totally agree. And, it, you know, really, is there anybody in Canada whose health hasn't been impacted in some way uh, by this pandemic? I would argue there probably isn't. You know, so where to start? And I think that's what's so challenging. And I think there's so many different conversations we could have. I, I think your, you know, your first point, please don't keep studying this is really important. You know, we've looked at this. We know what a lot of the issues are. Um, and we need to start moving forward on some some change. And and I, I think we can conceptualize it in a few different ways. I think one is, you know, starting with the perspective of, does the system we have right now meet the needs of Canadians in the current times? And is it able to evolve uh, into the issues that we're encountering in 2021? You know, what we really have is a system that was designed in the 50s to meet people's healthcare needs then. And of course, what we have in front of us now is much different. We have an aging population, which means we have a lot more chronic disease. People are surviving things like cancer and other illnesses uh, at rates they did not before. So we have a lot more complexity in medicine. We've also seen, you know, huge scientific advances. So there's all sorts of diseases now that we can treat um, and surgeries that we can perform that we couldn't in the past. So our ability to do things has gotten larger, uh, but the system hasn't maybe always kept up with that. Um, so I, I think what we really need to think about is, you know, how do we look at the system we have now and the healthcare needs that are in front of us and what needs to evolve? So there's, you know, a few things. One is our first problem is we have this sort of, I would say, fantasy about what we call universal health care. We don't really have a universal health care system in Canada. We have a universal illness care system. So, you know, if you need a hospital, you need a doctor, yes, that's paid for. But I think what we know is those aren't really the things that make people healthy. So if we don't sort of take a step back and look at what the system's doing to get people more health and wellness right from the beginning, we're in a lot of ways, we're sort of missing the point. Um, so addressing some of those social determinants and structural pieces to our society are really key because if we're not addressing those things up front, we're paying for them down the road. And, and that's uh, one of the big issues. Um, and then when you look at sort of how people enter our system, which is largely a system that's predicated on primary care being the access point, and there's lots of studies that have shown people that have access to a longitudinal primary care provider have better health outcomes and cost the system less because their issues are dealt with in a more preventative way and they do better. But one in five Canadians doesn't have that. So that system is breaking down. Um, and I think that's for a lot of reasons. And a big piece of that is the systems in which physicians and other healthcare professionals provide primary care also haven't really evolved to keep up with the changes that are happening. So, you know, we see examples of different ways of doing things, um, you know, more integrated team-based care, different payment structures for physicians, different ways of organizing care. But none of those things have really been scaled up in a large way. 
And what we're seeing is that a lot of physicians, you know, graduating from family medicine, going into primary care, aren't choosing longitudinal practice because the expectations have become so unreasonable in that space that it's just not a tangible choice for a lot of people. A huge piece of that has been the administrative burden of medicine that's really increased. So these electronic medical records that should be making our lives easier have actually made them much worse. So the amount of time that people are having to spend on that has dramatically increased. That's hugely problematic. And then, you know, and the other piece of that is we've also not leveraged what should be the benefit of those EMRs, which is better data. You know, that we have a ton of different types of EMRs. They don't speak to each other. Um, You know, we're seeing some provinces move to sort of provincial level integrated data, but that's new. There's no integration across the country. Um, So the benefits that we should be reaping from these EMRs haven't even really been actualized. So that's problematic. So you're kind of putting this burden on to providers without really then using those downstream benefits to inform the system. So that's challenging. So I think we really need to be thinking differently and talking with doctors and nurse practitioners and other healthcare professionals about how do we really bring integrated care to this country so that we can evolve the way we're thinking about care from a patient being dependent on a single doctor to them actually having a medical home with a team of people who are available to care for them. And that serves two purposes. It gives people better care that's more longitudinal and available, but it also helps address the issue of physician burnout, right? Because as one person, you can't be all things to all people 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It's just not sustainable. So by letting physicians work in teams, we can also address the issue of wellness and burnout, which will make our system more sustainable and draw more people into primary care if it starts to be a place where people feel like they can do a good job achieve some work-life integration and, and actually enjoy their work, which is not what we're hearing from doctors right now. So that's a huge problem. You know, when you look at the acute care side of things, that's, of course, you know, also something that's really difficult. And again, we don't have great data across this country to really be able to monitor what's happening there. So we don't have real-time monitoring of wait lists or backlogs. We're not gathering enough data, I don't think, to really be able to look at what our outcomes are for the investments we make in the healthcare system. We don't have a human health resource plan, you know, so we don't even really know exactly how many nurses and doctors we need and in what areas of specialty we need them trained. So when you're not planning for things down the road, of course, we know when you don't plan, you plan to fail. And that's kind of where we are. So that's really concerning uh, from that perspective. So I think there's just so many things that we need to be doing um, and really taking action on. And, And I think, unfortunately, we kind of get stuck with inertia instead of moving forward. And and I, th- I hope what we've maybe learned from this pandemic is that we have to start working together more. You know, we have to break down these silos that exist in our system. And we have to start seeing more willingness for the provincial and federal governments to work together. Um, I think it's, you know, one of the real challenges of partisan politics that we see is it's a lot of arguing and and telling everyone how bad the other side is, but where's the actual cooperation to move anything forward for Canadians? And and when it comes to the healthcare system, um, I think that time has really come. You know, we have to start addressing some of these issues. Yeah. And these issues aren't new. They for sure have been exacerbated by the pandemic, as you say, but a lot of the challenges you've outlined have been around for 10 plus years. Um, Part of I think the political challenge is that for, you know, for however many times Canada has 
appeared close to the bottom of the Commonwealth Fund Index for healthcare systems, Canadians think we have one of the best systems. <laughs> um, yes, and I agree. It's odd, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and that that that's hard. You know, I, I mean, politicians look at that and think, well, you know, Canadians seem pretty pretty satisfied. Um, so 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 how do we how do we get over that that hurdle or or crack that nut? No, it is so fascinating. And I totally agree with you. Like when all the information is telling us, no, guys, actually your healthcare system isn't that great and there's better ones. Um, that doesn't always seem to resonate. I think it's probably for a few reasons. You know, one, I think because our we neighbor the United States, um, so that maybe dominates our lens on healthcare compared to perhaps comparing ourselves to some European countries that might be more similar to us politically. Um and I think, you know, Canadians look south of the border, they see <clears throat> millions of people without health insurance, you know, these huge bills that people receive, people being bankrupt uh, by care. And, and I think that's really scary. And so they think, oh, what we have is way better than that. I don't have to worry about that. So they sort of feel happy about it in comparison. Um, so that might be one of the factors is what we're comparing ourselves to is even lower down the pile than where we're at. Um, I think the other piece is it, it has, in, in a lot of ways, it is kind of part of the Canadian national identity, right? We we do have this pride in our healthcare system, and I think it's something um, that has sometimes made it a bit like the elephant in the room, right? Like, no one really wants to talk about the fact it's not working well because there is this sense of pride in it or like a Pandora's box. Like, no one really wants to open it and find out what's really going on because it is so overwhelming to think about what to do. And And I think that combination of things, you know, has allowed politicians to sort of, you know, mention it and, yeah, we're going to, you know, we need to do something about it, but it hasn't maybe taken the predominance that it, that it should. Um, and, and I think that is concerning. You know, it's interesting because in this last election, some of the polling that we did showed that nine out of 10 Canadians felt that healthcare was the top priority. Um, so that was interesting. I do think, you know, people are realizing more and more it's a problem. But as you said, you know, a lot of these things we've been talking about, they're absolutely not new. That is so true. And I think that's really important, actually, for people to understand. The pandemic has absolutely made these things worse, but these were problems that were there before. So it's not like when the pandemic ends, this is all magically going to be better. And and not, neither are these things easy to solve. You know, if, if these were easy changes, they would have already happened. And I think that's also what's challenging. You know, when you look at a political cycle, these are not things that anyone's going to solve in one political cycle. These are deep problems. They need long-term thinking and planning. And I think that's a real challenge to you of politics is, is naturally as a political party, you're looking towards the next election. You're looking towards how do you engage with voters? What's going to, to get you that next agenda? Um, and so I think digging into some of these problems where um, they're complicated, the solutions aren't easy, and also the benefits that you're going to get from solving the problem aren't going to be in your term, right? They're going to be maybe 10 or 20 years down the road. There's a little bit less interest in going there. Um, but I, I think, you know, the problem is if we don't, where are we going to be in another 10 years? So the uh, report, uh, Struggling System, it specifically calls out the federal government. And we typically think of, you know, the provincial governments, you know, for constitutional reasons, having carriage of our health systems. So talk to me just a little bit about why, uh, you know, targeting the federal government as, you know, a very important part of the solution to our health system struggle. Well, I think what, what we know is that a large proportion of healthcare funding comes from the federal government. Um, it's a significant 
piece of the investment or the dollars that the provinces receive in terms of delivering care. So they have an important role to play there in terms of supporting investment. Um, I can also appreciate that's a challenging role for the federal government because they then don't necessarily have control over what those dollars actually do. So, you know, they're sort of being asked to pay up, but don't necessarily have a lot of input into for what. And I think that's likely why we've seen uh, a shift in interest from the federal government away from just, you know, continuously increasing the Canada health transfer to wanting some of these more targeted investments where they feel they have a little bit more say into what the dollars are going to do. Um, so I think, you know, we, we need the federal government to make good on some of those promises that they have made to continue to support the provinces by investing more resources in the system. So I think that's one piece they have a role they have to play for sure is is providing the the actual funds. Uh, But as we've been talking about, we all know that this problem is more significant than just more dollars going into a system that doesn't work well. So we also see a role for the federal government to provide some leadership on some of these pan-Canadian type issues. So, you know, one of them is the human health resource planning. That's a definite role for the federal government um, that can help the provinces develop a planning tool that then can have that national lens on this on this issue. So that's one area we think there could be leadership. National licensure is another issue that we've really brought up to the federal government. So, you know, right now, doctors, nurses, I think many people, I think lawyers, it's the same, right? You hold your, your registration and your license in the province or territory that you practice in. Um, but that really has limitations in a healthcare system where you need sometimes mobility of, of human health resources, uh, and that's challenging in that setting. And I think when we also look at now that virtual care has really come forward as another potential way to improve access to care, not having national licensure means that we can't utilize physicians across the country virtually to provide care to patients. So that's a barrier. So that's another space where we think the federal government could show uh, some leadership moving forward is trying to support changing some of those regulatory barriers so that we have more workforce mobility. And then we think there's just a lot of things where having some standards and pan-Canadian standards would make sense. You know, long-term care, of course, is a big one that's really also come up in this uh pandemic and just the atrocities that happened there are so concerning. Um, and with an aging population, you know, we recognize and we hear from Canadians all the time that that is such a huge source of concern for people. So what are some standards that could be brought forward by the federal government in terms of things like long-term care? You know, pharmacare is another one. There's been lots of conversations around the need for universal pharmacare. It's something that the CMA has been involved with with the government for a long time, and we've sort of gotten to a point with it, but then it's stopped. So that's another place where the federal government, I think, could have a huge impact on the day-to-day lives of Canadians while potentially saving costs. You know, that's what the data tells us about that. If we had universal pharmacare, the actual expenditures for people would be much lower. Um, and I think the federal government also has a role in, in, in providing that leadership and just bringing the provinces to the table uh, to have these conversations and, and to start trying to solve some of these issues. You know, I don't think it makes a lot of sense for every province to be totally reinventing the wheel on all of these things. You know, there's a lot that we do know. There's a lot of information out there that could be shared and we can take some best practices and then try to scale them up. Of course, that that local that perspective is important in healthcare, and and I, that should never be ignored. Um, but I I think there's a missed opportunity for people to be sharing what they've learned and to be really trying to work and collaborate. And and we see the federal government as a convener of those conversations, and and we hope that that's something that will will happen here soon. Yes, 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 yes. And I think that 
baked into to what you just said, some of these things don't cost a lot of money, right? Yes. Um, you know, you know, being a convener, tackling what's happening with licensure, um, these are not big ticket items. No, absolutely. I think they're, you know, and they're things that really in some ways could be quick wins, right? Like these are things we could actually take action on, make them happen. Let's get some momentum going, right? And and I think it comes back to, you know, what you said before, let's not, not have any more reports. You know, I think too often that's what we sort of fall back on is when we don't really know what to do, we just keep studying it. Um, and, and I think there's a role here for the federal government to get people in the room and, and really start identifying what are some of these wins, what are some of the things that aren't, like you said, necessarily huge dollars-wise, but just require a bit of different thinking um, so that we can actually make some change. Now, before I, I let you go, I have to ask, you know, there's this new variant of concern, Omicron, and we don't know a lot about it yet. Um, you, of course, uh, in your practice, uh, work under stressful conditions, um, and you've been uh, a member of Medivac team. So, so you have lots of experience with dealing with uncertainty. What do you have to say to Canadians to, to try and help them through what is understandably an anxious time? Yes, I you know, I totally agree. It is a really anxious time. I mean, I think the bottom line is we knew this was going to happen. We've been dealing with major issues around vaccine inequity across the world. Um, and it was only a matter of time till there was yet another variant, Delta being the most recent one. Now we're facing this. You know, as you said, I think right now there is just a ton of uncertainty about what impact Omicron is going to have in Canada, which is highly vaccinated. You know, what does that look like? How transmissible is it going to be? And more, most importantly, what level of disease is it going to cause in people and, and what's going to be uh, the impact of our vaccines in terms of fighting it? And, and this is something I think is going to become more clear over the coming days. So I think, you know, really right now, what we all need to do is, you know, take a deep breath. You know, we're, we're going to get through this. It is very anxiety provoking, but we've learned a lot uh, through the pandemic already. And, and I think we're much better equipped than we were uh, when this first started to know some of the things that work. And if we need to pivot back to those things, you know, no one wants that, but I think we know how to do it. Um, I think, you know, what can individuals do? They can become vaccinated if they're not vaccinated yet, right? They can continue to wear a mask when they're indoors and follow public health guidelines. Um, they can continue to be kind to each other and their communities and their healthcare workers. You know, I think I've really noticed right now, you know, as much as there's been all this harassment and violence we've been talking about, this is a small group of people. And I've also really noticed, you know, Canadians, I think, making that extra effort to say thank you, to smile, to acknowledge the person around them. I think we all know right now we're all under a lot of stress. And those small moments day to day when we encounter people, right, that extra word of gratitude, that extra recognition, a smile, even if it's behind your mask and you're smiling with your eyes, you know, people feel that. And, and I think right now we need to not underestimate the importance of, of just those basic acts in our day-to-day -day life to kind of keep us moving forward through this unknown period. Um, what it can't do is, is become so overwhelming that we lose sight of those, the importance just day-to-day -day of caring for each other. Um, and I know we're going to get through this as a country, and I really hope that this variant doesn't end up being a huge step backwards. Um, but what, what we have right now is we have each other and our loved ones and our communities, and I think we just have to keep pulling together. Dr. Smart, thank you so much for your leadership and for spending time with me today. Really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much, Jody. I really appreciate the conversation. 